I'm excited to welcome Dr. Ryan Feigenbaum, Developer Experience Engineer at Publishing Platform Ghost to Redmonk's Docs Are In, a series where we talk about docs of all stripes, from documentation to doctorates. Uh, my name is Kate Holterhoff. Uh, I am an analyst at Redmonk. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. All right. So Ryan reached out to me uh, following my Whiskey on Web, I'm sorry, Whiskey Web and Whatnot appearance this fall because we're pretty much the same person. So we share a Cincinnati <laughs> connection, got killer German surnames, humanities PhDs that we pivoted to software development, and possibly most shocking, we've got October birthdays. So of course, I had to invite my doppelganger on, uh, whose doctorate incidentally is in philosophy with a focus on the history of science, uh, to figure out why individuality and free will are an illusion. Um, so we're gonna start there. Uh, but, you know, so mostly kidding, but we are going to go deep on docs, and I suspect our academic backgrounds will play a not insignificant part uh, in this conversation. So let's begin with some background. Ryan, will you tell me a little bit about your journey to Ghost and the tech industry more broadly? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was always interested in the big questions. Um, is there free will? What is the good? Uh, what's the limits of human knowledge? And what should I name this variable? Um, but uh, so then I was ecstatic when I got to college and I found out there was a whole discipline that dealt with these big questions. That's philosophy. And so that's what I kind of devoted myself to. I got a BA in philosophy at DePaul University. And then I went to Villanova for my master's and my doctorate. And so my dissertation, The Epistemic Foundations of German Biology, uh, 1790 to 1802. I don't usually get to say that, so take every opportunity I get, right? You're welcome. Um, centered around the big question of um, what do we mean by life, by biological life? What's the difference between living and, bed, uh, living and dead? And specifically from the perspective, the historical perspective. Um, and so while I was doing this, while I was reading and re researching and writing about these kind of old German dead dudes. Um, I was like, can I do something else other than this? And I thought, well, I should make a website where I can express my thoughts to others about these weird German dead dudes. And so that got me into HTML. And I learned that learning HTML is a lot easier than learning Kant. Um, and it's a lot more practical too. And so it's just really exciting that I could make something and put it on the internet for anyone pretty easily without a lot of cost. So that, and that still is like a really exciting idea to me about a web development. Um, but that then led to CSS and JavaScript and it brought me to Ghost, which I'll talk about a little bit in, in a minute or two. Um, but that started kind of me really learning and, and doing web development. So I was writing my dissertation and I graduated um, and when I graduated, the landscape was dire, which I, I think you probably know about. Um, for every kind of professor job out there in philosophy, there were 200 really qualified PhDs applying for it. Um, and I saw my colleagues and my friends who were more talented than I were kind of just struggling. So it was a hard, it was a hard time to try to get a job in academia. Um, and I knew that coding was something that I really enjoyed and was satisfying to me. Um, because in some sense, solving a, an engineering riddle is kind of like solving a riddle in philosophy. There's these logical problems that you need to kind of work through. Uh, so I got a job in nonprofit um, management or academic nonprofits, not coding. Um, 
But uh, while I was at these uh, academic nonprofits, with their, there wasn't much of a budget for anything. So I got to exercise a lot of my tech skills. And it led me from anything, everything from kind of, you know, designing and just doing basic websites to building, excuse me, building full scale apps, like with um, Vue and Svelte and Superbase and all these kind of different things. And so that really kind of got me even more into the um, web development space. And I found out or realized, which was pretty obvious, that the parts of that I really enjoyed the most were the tech stuff. And I was finding any excuse, you know, to try to build some kind of app or do some 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 kind of thing like that. And so I saw this position open at Ghost, um, which I had been using for my own personal website for a long time. And so I jumped in uh, at that. And so Ghost, uh, give a little kind of just blurb about what Ghost is, if you're not familiar. So it's a publishing platform. It's kind of like a CMS or like uh, WordPress, um, but it includes a lot of nice kind of bells and whistles along with it. So it includes a membership um, out of the box. So if you want to monetize your content, you want to kind of gate different content, um, you can do that really easily. It also has newsletters built in so you can send newsletters. And then it's just a really beautiful editor to work with. So I think it's the best editor I've ever used in terms of just writing content. And that's what I think keeps a lot of people coming back because it's really fun just to write things. Um, And I saw a job opened up there in their support um, department or in support. And so that's how I joined. And I was doing, um, I was a support engineer working uh, with customers on different things. And then about a year into that, uh, a position opened up there in DevRel or Dev Experience Engineer or whatever you kind of want to call it. And then I shifted in that. And that's where I've been ever since. That's a really great story. And uh, you know, I love I love that your pivot involved not only doing some management in between, which I think I, I've seen a lot of my friends uh, do as well, where they got involved in this sort of nonprofit uh, space, but then you know, ultimately that your enthusiasm for coding was what uh, kind of moved you onto this this new sort of phase in career, um, which I think I see so many parallels with what developer experience um, professionals do and, and what we you know, do every day as academics. So can you speak more about like connections that you're seeing between, you know, your history as an academic and, you know, what you do in the day to day as a, you know, not only a ghost developer, but someone who, who speaks to the community more broadly that, you know, has the sort of the pulse of what developers actually are seeing and what they want? Yeah. Um, so kind of, I think maybe the, like about what's, how does the skills that you kind of develop in academia help you or benefit you in, in a dev rel role, um, or even just in engineering, I think. So I think there's a couple of different things. Um, one of them is, so I think that one of the big things that, that that's really beneficial um, is that in academia, one of the skills you develop, and it, I think it is a skill, is really reading and reading difficult things, reading hard things. Um, and as many tutorials are there, there are about writing code, there's not that many about reading code. So I think that having that skill of already being able to read and to take on something that maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first, at least, but being able to work through it is a really great kind of transfer of skills from academia to, um, to engineering. Um, another one is that I think, um, the ability to teach yourself or to learn, 
um, is a huge one. So this is something also that I think, you know, kind of we might take for granted. But so when you're studying um, in academia, especially at a higher level, there's only so much that you're going to learn in a class. A lot of it is something you're going to need to teach yourself. Um, And that means not only just reading a book, but also like figuring out what it is you need to learn and then what you need to learn to learn that. And um, that's a huge huge, huge skill, especially, right, that um, uh, development, web development um, shifts so quickly. Um, Just, I haven't been in it that long, but already, you know, like at at one point, you know, the single page applications were huge and now that's kind of fallen out of favor. And then, you know, there's now, you know, so many different frameworks and all, all that sort of different stuff. So you always kind of have to be able to learn that next thing. Um, And so I think that that's a huge skill to have to have. Um, I think one of the negatives, though, I think there is also maybe some negatives, um, is that in academia, so when I was working on my dissertation, it was working on writing that had been done 200 plus years ago. And if I published my chapter or a, a paper or something this month or next month, it wasn't that big of a deal. But I think in engineering, in, in getting kind of documentation fixes, that sort of thing, it moves, it's much more time sensitive. So you kind of have Mm -hmm. to really be prioritizing and being aware of getting things out quickly and knowing what, what needs to get out, which is a little bit different than, than in academia. Um, but I think the art of reading is really important and a big skill. And then also just being able to teach yourself. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Um, I tend to frame it as uh, research with what I do more as an analyst, but I mean, it's the exact same skill that you're mentioning where I, you know, I, I'm able to use my background uh, as an academic to to you know find resources that are going to to give me the information that I need. Skim what you know what I'm finding yeah. so that I can get to that the meat of it real quickly. Try to you know my bullshit detector I think is pretty good. Um, but then also yeah like it just dig in and, and interview folks that that are giving me the information I need. Um, and then yeah what you're saying about the the time sensitivity I'm definitely seeing that as well where. Um, you know, there's so many jokes about reader number two and peer review. Right, and, right. You know, I'm I'm a bastion for peer review. I'm like, yes, we we definitely need peer review. Um, my research and certifications and upscaling. I'm always bringing up the accreditation thing. But you're right. I know there's there's something about the fact that we need to move so quickly in this space. And with the the rise of AI, it's going <laughs> four times as yeah. quick. Um, so yeah, like how do you adhere to that? The um, the, the medieval model of, of uh, the university and still, you know, hope to, to, to keep up, uh, you know, with, with what's going on in industry. Yeah. It's a, it's a real question, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that certainly resonates with, with what I'm seeing as well. Um, so yeah, th- th- I guess, you know, thank you, <laughs> thank you for laying it out that way, the good and the bad, because yeah. I think, you know, we do tend to think of like academia as, you know, or coming in with a PhD to any field is like, Oh, well, this is an unmitigated good, uh, not sure that that's always the case. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. and I think too, there is that, and I think you kind of brought it up, but there is that in, when you're in academia and it depends a lot on the field, but in the humanities, there's sort of this desire to be exhaustive and to kind of explore every like nook and cranny mm. to your, you know, heart's delight in, in some respect, but in that's just not possible in, in, in engineering, right. You need to be much more focused and kind of be able to, to separate the, you know, what's good and what's bad or what's useful and what's not. Yeah. 
I know. I know. And it kills me too, because I want to <laughs> go down that rabbit hole. Right. I want to get all the information. I want to read all the things before I, I hit publish, you know, but you just can't. You really have to just be like, okay, I'm going to time block an hour to do this task. And whatever I find in that time is probably good enough, you know, but, you know, because we have spent what uh, a decade in in that role, hopefully what we're finding is, is the most, um, you know, resonant, uh, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. It reflects the the sort of breadth of what we're looking for that it, it actually gets to, to the meat of it. Um, yeah. I wonder these things, uh, but it also kind of forces me to like be working all the time where I'm always listening to podcasts as a way to try to like keep up with the newest things. I mean, you know, you and I both kind of, um, uh, sit in the, the front end space. Um, and so, yeah, I've just always got like the, this, you know, um, all these podcasts that, that try to keep me so that I can be, you know, washing dishes or doing something around the house, uh, watching my kids, but also at the same time, be, be trying to work because there's just so much and it's like impossible to keep up. It is great. I mean, that's what, that's how I found out about you was on the, on the <laughs> podcast, which is, um, yeah. And so I'm always listening to those and my favorite, which is, uh, I mean, I've been doing it forever. And that's like when I got started in, in it, I was listening to podcasts a lot. Um, but, uh, while, while I like to run and I'm in a, like a neighborhood running group, but I'm always like listening to web development podcasts as I'm running, which is kind of weird, but it, it works. It's great. Um, and I can even think about there. So there was a podcast, um, by syntax, which I, I I like their, their podcast a lot, Yeah. but, um, they had one early, earlier on about kind of, um, I think the different different array methods like filter and uh, uh, sort and map and all that sort of thing. And I can remember now when I think about that, I, I can remember myself running. I was living in South Bend at the time, um, huh. but like where I was running when I was listening to that podcast, which is it's kind of funny. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I got I, I can always uh, now when I recall information that I learned on podcasts, I can think of where I was standing when yeah. that happened. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how that works. Instead of like. It used to be when I had when we had physical books long, long ago, right? I would remember where in the book yeah. something would occur, and now I could I could remember where I was standing. Yeah, this multimodal world we're living in. I yeah. don't know. Now we're all going to get AI pins, I guess, and, and <laughs> thinking about what our, what our hand was doing at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about DevX because I think that that's such an interesting space right now, and it's really going through this evolution. So, you know, it's become more and more contentious since. Uh, Tech's uh, you know economic downturn, I'd say, um, you know, last year. So there were a number of high-profile layoffs, and then you know, folks just leaving the space because they were unhappy with the the mission and then where they think it's going. So, uh, you know, thinking particularly of like Ali Diamond's video, um, "Why I Left Developer Relations." Um, so, do you have a sense of of um, the state of DevX? You know, as we near the close of twenty twenty three. And, you know, how do you think this role is is going to evolve, um, you know, in the next year, maybe the next five years? I, I won't ask you to look in your crystal ball 10 years down the road, but like, where, where are we going with um, this, you know, this space? Um, it's a good question. I feel like I don't know. I don't have a good sense or a good answer for you, but I do yeah. think that it is, I mean, the the kind of what's happened is definitely a symptom of just the larger tech landscape and that sort mm-hmm. of the contestations between um, VC or capital and tech and, and, and everything that kind of falls out from that, I think. Um, so I, I think that there's always, there's always going to be certain tensions there. Um, but I, and I don't think it's necessarily unique to, to have that, um, like 
developer experience or or developer advocacy. Um, I think that you know everyone's kind of uh, subject to it in one way or another. Um, but I do think that so one of the things that is interesting, and I think some people don't like it, but I, I think it's actually a positive, is that this role will continue to be amorphous. Um, so that like what this means is going to be defined according to the needs of a company, first of all, but, um, it is also going to continue to be a role that needs to kind of wear a lot of different hats. Um, and I think that this actually kind of, to tie it back to the, the question of, um, of the kind of having skills from academia, it's very similar. Um, and so I think that's also why, uh, someone who's maybe coming out of academia, could be a role, a role for them or at least having similar skills. So I think, so a professor, an academic, a scholar needs to be able to talk to students who are at the beginning of their learning journey, but then also their colleagues who are at the like highest levels of it. So you have to be able to context switch between this is my like, you know, this is like, let, let's like shop talk, industry kind of terms, all that sort of thing. You know, the kind of words that we can use, the vocabulary we can use to discuss this at a high level and kind of communicate more efficiently to like, you might have no idea what's going on. Let me kind of introduce you to this topic. So being able to do that, I think is a really important part of the, of the role. Um, and it's very similar to what a professor needs to do. Uh, I think also, you know, uh, academics need to navigate that kind of, um, like, uh, the administration, um, other colleagues that kind of whole bureaucracy of a university, which is similar to right um, the the needs of the board or of your management or whatever of the company, uh, you know, as at the same time of your own kind of you know research ethics or whatever you, you want to you know is important for you to push or representing the needs of the user or this sort of thing. So there's always that kind of tension there that you need to navigate, um, but that's something that's going to be more familiar to. Um, to a professor in, in some ways. And then also, um, you know, of course, creating the materials. So creating pedag pedagogical materials like videos, tutorials, documentation, and then even, you know, sometimes doing the work of coding, um, all of that kind of is similar in, in, you know, an academic needs to not necessarily code, but, but produce all that sort of stuff too. But I think coming back then the, that's, that's the role, uh, in, in a lot of ways of the DevX person, um, going, you know, from talking to different audiences, engaging with community, producing these um, educational materials, but then also writing code and making sure that the kind of environments and infrastructure and everything is working as it should be. All right. And since we are on the docs are in, I must dig into your mention of, you know, documentation and sort of upskilling documents. So can you Tell me a little bit about what, uh, you know, what the documentation looks like at Ghost and, you know, how, I guess, developer experience ties into that as a, as a sort of philosophy and, and why it's just, you know, so important to have great docs. Yeah. Um, so I think that from just a kind of a higher perspective, I think why docs are so important or at Ghost, why they're valued so much, because it is something that the, the company takes very seriously and that we especially as a publishing, um, company, like the, the written word, um, is very important. Um, everyone in the company writes to some extent. And so, um, it, it, everything's really documented well, even internally. Um, so there's, I give a lot of props to them for that, but, um, 
it is also thought of as it's it's kind of our primary marketing tool, I think. Um, so it's the way that our we want our users to succeed as much as possible with our product or just in general to, to do well. Um, and our docs, that's the goal of them. So we have several kind of different facets of it, um, especially so Ghost um, talked a little bit. So it's a publishing platform, but we have um, it's open source. So you can run Ghost yourself. Um, we have a one-click install on DigitalOcean, but you can run it pretty much anywhere. It's a JavaScript app. Uh, node app. So um, anywhere you can run a node app, you can run Ghost. Um, but we also then, the way that we make money is um, through a hosted product. So we host Ghost for you, uh, take care of all that kind of infrastructure and give you some nice, you know, CDN and some caching and all that sort of stuff. But um, we're also, so something that's interesting, we are, um, so I didn't quite get away from nonprofits because Ghost is a nonprofit foundation. Um, so all of our kind of metrics are open, um, are, you can go to ghost.org slash about and see, you know, how much money we're making. Um, all that money needs to come back into the company. We don't have any shareholders or any VC. Um, but then we also have, you know, so there's about 24,000 users on ghost, our hosted platform. And then we have lots of others in other places, but it sets up a, um, kind of a, a documentation nightmare because we have a lot of different um, planes of how people could be using Ghost. So we have people that could be using it on our hosted platform. We have people who could be doing self-hosting on like a Raspberry Pi in their living room or something. Um, so there's a wide range of how people are excuse me, using our product. Um, so we, we have different kind of outlets for each of these. So we do have our help documents for um, the product where if you're just trying to use it, that's where you'd go for that. We have a resources um, documentation, which uh, is a newsletter, but then also documents about people who are just trying to, to write and cultivate an audience so that they can succeed in that way. And then the parts that I'm um, in charge of or responsible for are are more developer centric stuff. So we have things on like how you write, uh, create a theme, but then also how you self host. Um, so we have that's like our developer documentation, and then we also have tutorials, um, which is more a different type of content um, for create like interacting or doing different things on Ghost, um, but for a more technical perspective. Um, so I think that one of the things that kind of comes out of that is that documentation isn't a monolith. There's a lot of kind of different facets of it. Um, and specifically, I think a big one that we focus on, um, or that's for me is a big focus is the difference between uh, tutorial and like developer documentation. Uh, developer documentation is more of a manual. It's something kind of, it's a, you want to just get the information quickly, kind of, you know what you're looking for, you're trying to find it out. Um, whereas a tutorial has more of a narrative, has more of a story. Uh, there's kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a problem that's resolved. Um, it's something that's a little more engaging, uh, has a little more personality. And so I can talk more about that kind of approaches that we have to to documentation, but that's sort of the overall landscape, I guess, of, of documentation at Ghost. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate beginning with the philosophy, but I, I think, you know, a lot of folks who are listening to this probably are interested in the sort of tooling that you're using just because it's, 
such a big part of, of writing great documentation. So are you able to dig into that, um, you know, get into the weeds with us a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess one, one thing I'll, I'll take a step back. And, um, one of the things that I've learned from being at Ghost, but I think is a really great, um, approach to documentation, which isn't always, I think the normal one, maybe, um, but that's to begin with your audience. Um, mm-hmm. so rather than, so, so that's where we begin with all of our documentation is with the audience. And, uh, what I mean by that is that, uh, so it's, it's nothing, it's nothing too foreign or too crazy, but we come up with persona for each one of the possible, like people who could be reading our documentation. Um, and we ask sort of not only like, you know, what is their skill level or where are they at in terms of what they know, but also like, what are they looking for? Not just out of this documentation, but in life, kind of having this idea really of a person, um, like what's going to stand in their way to succeed? What's going to, um, like, what are they worried about? Who do they look up to? These sorts of questions. Um, and it might sound like a little bit hokey kind of, or, or something, but it really helps you when you then start writing to kind of know who you're writing to or for. And, um, and it helps with kind of how you frame the documentation and then also how, um, like what you leave in and what you take out. Uh, so Mm -hmm. what you can assume that they know, or they don't know, or, um, I think another kind of facet of this or part of this is that, um, especially from like an engineer will have an, uh, like, oh, we should document everything and include everything. And I think that part of that you get too much noise to like signal the noise, you know, that ratio gets, gets messed up. And so you really want to make sure that you're only including what's really necessary. Um, and you don't need to do, you don't, then that means not documenting everything. Um, but having that persona and starting from that persona, um, or multiple persona and even sub persona and, and having users in mind, I think that's the thing that can elevate your docs frame and help you write the best. In terms of actual, just con- more concrete resources, um, so I think that uh, style guides for technical writing in particular are really important. Um, so this includes, you know, how you write about the product, how you write the, the voice and tone, um, and even how you phrase certain things, like tense, you know, what tense you use, all that sort of things helps bring a lot of consistency. Um, and I think that's probably not something that's too uncommon at, at companies, but specifically not just for, for general marketing, but specifically for technical documentation. Do you, do you all have a, do you have a technical style guide? We don't, not a red monk. No, we, we, we kind of do it. Uh, I don't know what, uh, you know, off the hip so that, you know, we, we, um, I, th- I think each of the analysts here, we tend to have our own voice, yeah. uh, which is fun. Um, but no, it's, uh, it probably should be on our, our list of things to do. Um, I do find it's really helpful just even, you know, when you write URL, you know, do you have a capital letter and then lowercase or all, ca- you know, these sorts of just kind of little yeah. things. It also takes out some of the decision fatigue, you know, when you're, when you're writing, um, another style guide we have, that's been really helpful is a screenshot style guide. Um, so when you take a screenshot to ensure you get high quality screenshots, um, and this, so for instance, like one of the things we have is if you're taking a screenshot of a, then the application's white or whatever, and then you're putting on a white background, make sure that it has a border so you can kind of differentiate. And there's lots of other little things you can do in that way. Um, more 
concretely, I guess there's share X on windows and then like, um, clean shot X on Mac, uh, which really are awesome, especially the clean shot X on Mac. Um, I'm sure lots of people use it, but it's a fantastic, um, screenshot utility. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really like, there's a site called Spreely.com and they also have a Chrome extension that you can use, but that will produce a, um, screenshot inside of a browser frame, like a browser window. And that's really nice free utility for that. Um, other tools that we use, I like to use for, um, documentation. So I think, uh, diagrams and art creating graphics for, uh, documentation is really interesting. And I've seen some people who just do amazing stuff, but, um, I think that there's often times where a diagram or a graphic or something like that can convey an idea or a concept much better than just, you know, writing it or describing it. And so for that, I usually use things like Excaladraw, Figma, PowerPoint, Keynote, that, those sorts of things to create that. Nothing too, too wild. Um, but I, I really um, would love to see to more people and how they do that. Um, I feel yeah. like that's something that there's some people who are really talented at that. Um, another tool that has been really helpful is uh, feedback. So some way for your users to give you feedback um, on your documentation. Uh, so we use a product called Appsy, A-P-P-Z-I, which is free. Um, but we have, you know, at the bottom of a, of a help doc or the tutorial, you know, what did you think about this? And it's great for people telling you, you know, it's usually they're going to tell you it's bad and something's wrong with it. But uh, <laughs> as is the case, you know, they're not really going to fill it out if it's amazing or that once in a while it happens. But it's basically telling you this is out of date. It's not working anymore. There's a typo or some kind of problem. But it's really good because you can get that right away, act on it, fix what needs to be fixed. Um, and then the last, well, maybe two more. So the one, another one, examples. So examples are really important. Um, so I have, uh, three rules about examples. Um, so when you're thinking about examples for documentation or for a tutorial, uh, so don't be blase. So don't don't pick something too boring. Um, try to pick something that's going to be exciting or fun, right? Um, don't be too abstract. Um, so I really dislike when you do a, a, a tutorial or a documentation and they pick either something that's like, would never be a real life or a real use case, it's so kind of removed from what you would actually be trying to do that it doesn't really help you. Or it's even so like in such a vacuum that it doesn't take into any of the real complexity. I mean, there's, you kind of have to navigate there, but I like when, when it's like, this is actually something that someone would want to do. And then I think third, um, is don't be biased. So this is a big one where, you know, make sure that if you're talking about an engineer, it's not all white males. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you have a diversity yeah. in your examples. Another big one that you need to look out for is if your audience isn't, you know, in the U.S. or is worldwide, um, is your example going to make sense to an international audience? Um, is there any kind of c- cultural norms that you're assuming that might not play on a larger, you know, international stage? Um, I think I had read something one time about someone did a whole thing with cats and then in someone's culture that they're reading this, they had no idea what they were very confused because the cat wasn't, had this, didn't have the same cultural kind of, um, position. And so this is just something to be aware of. So I think biases, um, and, uh, 
yeah, and kind of cultural assumptions. Uh, yeah. And then the last thing, which is kind of like pretty big right now, but AI. Um, so I think it can be a huge um, like tool, great tool for writing docs, of course. Um, I think also though that the docs are what AI is going to ingest or what's going to make up the the language model. So this is even a right. better or like more motivation to have uh, as good as docs as possible. Um, especially mm-hmm. I think something that's going to become more popular will be this like retrieval augmented generation bots where it's kind of the language model and then it's your documentation on top to give a very bespoke um, ability for people to interact with your documentation. But that requires you to have really good docs um, or else it won't work or at least some kind of educational materials. So uh, producing that is is important, but I think it's, you know, you need to you kind of need to know how to use the AI and then it's still where it's going to require a lot of input on your part or at least revision on your part, because what you usually get out sounds like it doesn't sound like you, uh, it doesn't have that personality or voice, which I think is important. But, uh, yeah, so that's a lot, that was a lot of uh, different resources and tools. No, this is awesome. I love it when we get into brass tacks like that. And I also appreciate that you, you know, you brought up the the idea of accessibility, the fact that you're speaking to a broad audience and you don't always know who's going to be reading this. Um, and then, yeah, of course, got to talk about the that AI chatbot version of our you know, documentation that is that is clearly going to be the future. I mean, all so many folks have created, um, you know, chatbots that, that do this already. Um, yeah. Whether they're also generating code snippets, but you know, certainly able to to query the docs. Um, one question related to that is, do you, where does the, um, I guess the, the experience of the developer come in? Like, do you tend to write documentation um, that, so you said that it, it needs to, to you know, um, we, we need to think of experts as well as sort of new users, but how fine-grained does that get in terms of like reaching junior developers and senior developers who just, you know, know how to do things generally, but then also can you know, get past it. And maybe, I don't know, can we tie this into like the idea of pedagogy? I mean, how do you use documentation as part of a larger sort of, you know, education portfolio at Ghost or, you know, just in general? Yeah. Um, so I think it can be, it can be very, I mean, it can be fine grained um, in, in some respects. I think, so it comes back to a little bit that the, that documentation isn't a monolith. So there, there can be mm-hmm. lots of different kinds of documentation. Um and I think that that persona enters in a little bit more for um, for certain kinds of documentation, like a tutorial. So, uh, mm-hmm. on our, so go, we have ghost.org/tutorials, and we the tutorials, okay. which it's an organization, the organization might might change soon, but right now it's kind of a it, it's based on the persona. So there's fundamentals, level up do more. I see. And it's, and we have very specific guidelines. Like, uh, does this tutorial assume a knowledge of CSS and HTML? Does this assume, you know, so, and that's like how we put it in there, um, for our other document, like our, more of our developer docs, it's a much different, it, it, it's more, um, it's kind of a single level, I would say where, um, it, it's, it's more, you know, we're going to assume you have some knowledge of what's going on here. Um, and there's not as much of the differentiation, but I think that, you know, in terms of, so documentation at its, at its heart is just some words on a page to communicate knowledge. And that's been, 
uh, a standard for a long time. Um, so I think it's a good, like, it's a good way to do it. It's a kind of industry best practice, but I think that, um, probably, I think the developer experience or thinking about developers in terms of pedagogy, um, there are a lot more or newer tools that are coming out that make, I think this sort of thing easier. And I think some of the bigger people in the space have, have done good jobs of this. And I'm thinking here, like where you can have the, you know, sort of live code playgrounds, or you can do, um, like kind of, you know, like launch VS code in your browser with the whole project set up type of thing. Um, and mm-hmm. that's something I think that ghost, we want to move toward doing more of that. It's just, um, a little bit, you know, that takes more infrastructure to set up. Um, but I think doing like those sorts of tools in terms of pedagogy, specifically for developers, um, are really exciting and, and help do a lot where you can kind of really do it in the browser. I think Svelte has really, does this really well. Um, you can, you know, they'll, they have an interpreter right in the browser where you can write Svelte code and see what the output is and see if it's going to work. Um, and that's connected right into their, um, docs, uh, their tutorials. So I think that's, that's a kind of cool thing that, uh, will become more and more possible. Um, and, and, and I mean, already is, but it'll become even easier, I guess, to do. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, did you, uh, teach much when you were an academic? Was that a big part of your role? Yeah. So Villanova was, um, very, so they had a very strong, uh, pedagogy, um, focus. So as soon as you started, you, I think in your second year, you started maybe TAing and then third year teaching, but, um, I taught a lot. Yeah. I taught a lot of intro to philosophy, um, was the main class I taught, but then I also taught, um, some other kind of related courses, you know, other philosophy, higher level philosophy courses. Yeah. So does, does, you know, doing this sort of work kind of scratch that itch of, of, you know, being in front of a classroom and getting to, you know, spound upon things that are very interesting and sort of, uh, you know, use best practices for communicating information, you know, interactive tutorials, uh, you know, speaking in a way that's going to be accessible to the greatest number of folks in the room, uh, things like that. I, yeah, I think so. So I think that the, so far what I've done, so I've, I've, I do have videos, I've created some videos for ghost and have my, my tutorials. It does a little bit, but it's not quite the same. I think that the being in a classroom, um, yeah. is a different, it, it's, it's fun. I mean, and I do miss that, that, that was, that's probably the thing from academia that I miss the most. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the closest you get is when presenting at a conference, um, is pretty fun. I would also like to, which I haven't ever done before, but doing some streaming, um, that seems like it'd be fun. Yeah. Um, where I would love to like build something on stream. Um, but it also seems like a lot of work <laughs> and pretty hard. And, um, the people who, I mean, the, who do it too are, um, it, it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of walks that line too of entertainment versus education or what, right. what exactly the difference is, but it does, yeah. you do get some more of that, like, you know, uh, instant feedback or interaction, which is cool. Um, I don't know. What do you, where, what, how do you feel about it? Well, I mean, first off, you've committed to creating a stream now, Ryan. So uh, yeah, you're, <laughs> we're holding you to this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I love teaching. I thought it was a lot of fun. I got such a rush from, from being in front of the classroom. But, you know, like you, I, I got out because it's just not a, I don't know, it's not a viable career path for most PhDs. Yeah. You know, it just, there's, 
you know, there was no there there uh, in terms of like, you know, finding a job with healthcare, you know, able to buy a house, at, you know, eventually, right? There's, there's all these sort of things that you just oh, don't boy. get as an academic, unfortunately. Um, because I tell you what, I could walk out today and find a job adjuncting uh, at any of the universities here um, because they still need the teachers. They just, you know, uh, it's not a sustainable career, unfortunately. So, but yeah. that is, that is a different, uh, <laughs> we'll leave that for another uh, Yeah, we another could video. speak another hour on that. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, but so I, I think it's probably a good uh, note for us to end on, you know, the, our love of teaching and the fact that the classroom was uh, really where, uh, you know, where we're folks with our particular proclivities can shine. So I want to thank Dr. Feigenbaum for coming on the Docs are in today. Um, if you uh, want to uh, follow any of the the streaming work that that uh, he's going to be doing in the future, uh, you know where where would be the best place for for folks to follow you? Um, so you can find me on my website, so ryanfeigenbaum.com on Ghost, <laughs> um, and uh, you can also find me on um, GitHub. Uh, so Royal Fig, that's probably the two best things. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Mastodon, but I, I don't remember what my things are at the moment. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's, so I'm usually Royal Fig. Um, so Feigenbaum in German means fig tree and Ryan kind of means king or royal. So I have this kind of Royal Fig uh, name that, uh, so that's where you can find me most places or yeah. All right. Excellent. Uh, well, with that, the docs are out.